Hey, it's Laura. Welcome to an episode we have been dying to share. In March, we went down to South by Southwest, where I moderated a conversation with some amazing people on the front lines of addiction. We were excited. We were nervous. It was our first live event for the show, a show that we birthed in the heart of the pandemic. So I was actually laughing to myself on the way down to Austin, thinking this should have really been called South by South Awkward this year. And I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't actually say that during the event. Uh, Anyway, our guests on the panel were Wes Hurt, a sober guy, a sober guy, a sober gentleman, uh, and the founder of Clean Cause. Uh, Clean Cause is a beverage company with a triple bottom line approach that funds sober living scholarships and creates delicious beverages. Also, we got to hear from the extraordinary Jan Rader. She has been a frontline worker in the toughest parts of the opioid epidemic in Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, She's featured in the Netflix documentary, Heroin, with a -A E-H-E-R-O-I-N-E. It's awesome. Watch it. She is wise and humble and compassionate and so, so funny. Uh, I learned so much from her in the couple of days we spent together. We went to dinner. Jan was amazing. Um, And then last but not least, we were joined by the musician, Jason Isbell, who anyone who's been around this show for a while knows that I am a massive fan. His willingness to share his story uh, and himself just adds so many layers of, of complexity and insight into his work and Like all the other guests, he totally showed up that day. If you're new to the podcast, we hope you'll check out some other episodes. Tell Me Something True is a show for everyone who's asking, how can I have a better week this week than I had last week? We talk about recovery, yes, but really in the broader context of how we can all live more present, real, and ultimately joyful existence. Like the show tagline says, we're here for anyone who wants to fall in love with the mystery of life again. Another thing I want you to know, which we have been absolutely terrible about promoting, I should get fired, uh, is that we create playlists for every single episode. Every week, either Michael or I curate a Spotify playlist to go with the mood of the show. Yes, this happens. You can access those on our website at tmstpod.com under episodes. I'm going to start promoting them on social. Why do we do this? Well, one, because we're all big into music here, but really we contain multitudes and art and music and literature are great ways to go deeper on the things we explore in this podcast. So it's part of the experience. Plus, let's face it, podcasts are cool, but podcasts with playlists are cooler. So head on over to Spotify. Uh, you, you can go to our website, but you can also just go directly to Spotify and search Tell Me Something True in playlists, and you'll find every single one there. Okay, ready? Let's head down to the big stage at the 2022 South by Southwest Festival. Enjoy.
Well, thanks for coming to this session. It's probably not the uh, lightest topic you could come to listen about uh, at South by Southwest, but no doubt for us, one of the most important. So we're really grateful you're here. And I'm going to start out by doing something maybe a little unconventional for South by. So we're going to breathe for a minute. <laughs> we're going to stop and breathe. So go ahead and let go of your phone in your hand and just set your palms in your lap, feet on the floor. Yeah, you guys follow too. And uh, close your eyes, take a big, huge deep breath. And exhale out the mouth so we can hear it. We'll do another one, inhale. And exhale. One last one. Inhale. And exhale. That's better. All right, so I'm going to count you all in. So who here would count themselves in as someone in recovery? Raise your hand. Wes? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm still in recovery. Yeah. All right. Text the watch. <laughs> now, who uh, here has been impacted by addiction, either by someone that you know, work with, love, care about? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's what I thought. All right, and who felt like when addiction hit, they had the resources, the empathy, the awareness, the tools, the knowledge to know exactly what to do? That'd be a no, right? So we've got this huge gap in addiction is everywhere. I think literally everyone raised their hands for that second question. And we mostly feel helpless about it and clueless about what to do. So that's our starting point today. So <clears throat> I'm going to go to Wes first. What was the most surprising and difficult part about getting sober for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So much involved in it. Um, I think the most difficult part for me was believing that I could actually change. Um, you know, you had these moments for 20 years that as the addiction grew, you'd go to a rehab, I'd go to a psych ward, all of the different consequences. i get out, I'd have kind of a fleeting moment of like inspiration, and then, then I'd be back in the same spot. So I had that history to know what I had done, at least. And so, you know, this, this new sober resolution again, I'm gonna get it this time. And I think for me, at the very beginning, the most difficult part was actually believing with conviction and resolve, like within me, that like, no, this is real, I can do it, versus fake it till you make it kind of thing, which, yeah. is, which is also valuable at times. Um, I think the most surprising thing was after you start to gain a little bit of time and, and you start to change a little bit inside and start to, you know, the drugs are getting out of the system, some neuroreceptors maybe fire one off a little bit or something, and you're going, oh, crap. Uh, just two months ago, I was completely frightened about X, Y, or Z. Now I'm completely frightened about X, Y, or Z, but I know that I've grown. Mm -hmm. So then you start to realize that like, this truly is a journey. There is no destination. Because when I got there, I was like, okay, oh crap. So now what else do I not know? Well, seven years, now I'm sitting here, same thing. Mm -hmm. Crap. These new revelations that come in place that you just, you had heard about, 
but surprisingly, they happen to you, and then you go, oh, that's what they meant. Yeah. What made the difference that last time? What made that difference? I, for me, it was, a, it was an honesty, I would say, that the best way for me to explain it was me in a mirror for the first time in my life. I wasn't leveraging, manipulating, or looking at others to hold on to one person to be resentful towards, to continue to feed it, or to rationalize my use. Mm -hmm. um, and having that level set, and I've said this before, which was in a state of limbo of not wanting to live, but not wanting to die. And then, you know, really looking at that mirror and going, dude, you have the power now in your own to choose. It's your life. So I think it was really the recognition and the, the isolation between myself and I. <laughs> If that makes any sense of saying, dude, who are you? Who do you want to be? Do you want to live on this planet? Get level set with yourself. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it, that's how it happened. It was like, I, I contemplated dying and, and suicide is what it looked like for me. Mm -hmm. And I just said, no. And now I got two baby boys, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, anyway. <laughs> All right, Jason, what do you think is the most, the thing that people most misunderstand about addiction? Well, you know, there are a whole lot of reasons uh, not to take that first step. And uh, I, th I mean, I think the stigma around, you know, addicted people are broken in some way or flawed in some way. Um, mm -hmm. That concept is one that I think a lot of people still hold, you know, because I think we have this natural tendency to try to separate ourselves from other people to generate some sort of self-worth. So it's, it's yeah. another reason to think, well, I'm doing all right. I'm better than this guy. He's an addict, you know. Um, and I think that does a lot of bad work as far as encouraging people to get sober because, you know, oftentimes when you're an addict, it's this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, I'm a bad person, so I do bad things. So I go do a bad thing, and then I feel like I'm a bad person, so I make another bad decision, and on and on and on. And I think what I didn't understand early on in the process, um, and, and still am learning more and more about, but especially in the last couple of years, I really, I realized that not only was the recovery a gift in my particular situation, but the addiction itself was a gift. Because without that, I would have never learned the lessons that I learned in recovery. And, you know, whatever, whatever type of, of recovery you, you subscribe to, uh, you know, it's, there's kind of the golden rule of, of recovery programs, which is this remaining in the moment. You know, when I was in rehab, they would say, keep your head and your ass in the same place. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, it's, it's the one day at a time thing and never in my life have I needed that more than when every day was identical to the one before it like it was for the last couple of years when I was yeah. sitting in my house with my family not doing my job and it just occurred to me one day had I never been an addict in the first place I never would have learned uh, the things that I needed right now you know and I might have lost my shit but the fact that I'd gone through the recovery process uh, 
gave me some tools. I, I think, you know, it's not a matter of you being a broken person and needing to get fixed. It's a matter of, you know, there's this box of tools that are available to you in a very special way. And the way you learn them is a way that sticks if you go through the recovery process and get better. Um, and then you're gonna have tools that people who were never an addict in the first place never had access to. That's right. You know? What is one of your, your big tools? Well, the awareness is everything for me. And, and at first it felt like rawness, you know. Um, I was telling somebody last night that the first year or two or three or four, especially that first year after I got sober, you know, I, I felt like I didn't have any skin on my body. You know, it was like everything was was bright and terrifying and the senses were heightened. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a scary thing. But I learned uh, how to shift my perspective, you know, based on how aware I was of what was going on around me. And, yeah. and I think a lot of my particular version of addiction was for the purpose of numbing that awareness. And, uh, you know, when I found out I didn't need to do that, e even as bad as the world can be, it's, it's sometimes a really beautiful place if you're just paying attention. You know? Yeah. That's great. Thanks. All right, Jan. So uh, I want to talk about your role as, I have to look at my notes because it's quite long. Yes. Director of Mayor's Council on Public Health and Drug Control Policy in Huntington, West Virginia. So those, for those who may not know, Jan's community in Huntington is one of the hardest hit communities uh, in the opioid crisis. It's estimated that about half a million Americans have died of overdose, of op opioid overdose since the pharmaceutical companies started pumping out pills uh, in the late 90s. And in Jan's hometown, this statistic just astonished me, 81 million pills have been sent into her community, and the community is only 91,000 people. So I'll say it again. 81 million pills went to 91,000 people, which is, I can't get my head around that. Uh, one in 10 people in her community suffer from opioid addiction, and 2,500 children have been born estimated with problems, developmental problems related to opioid addiction. So. Jan uh, served on the, was a fire chief for Huntington uh, and served at the, as, um, at the, the fire, what the hell do you call it? The well, front the, lines? Well, no, I know oh. that, but I'm thinking like the fire squad? No. I was a firefighter for 20 years. You were a firefighter yeah, for, for 20 years. Yeah, 27. Yeah, 27 years, yeah. and so she's yeah. been really on the front line of this opioid crisis for a long time. So... How have the gaps in the understanding that we're talking about, there's like this empathy gap. How have these gaps shaped the way that your community has responded to and suffered from what is essentially a mass casualty event in your community? Yes, it is, and it, and it continues. Um, we've had success in Huntington. People like to call us the epicenter of the opioid epidemic, but I feel like we're the epicenter of the solution. And um, we uh, have strived very hard to make sure that we find the gaps and we fill the gaps. And when we started working on the uh, problem that we have, we, had, we have Mayor Williams, who is an incredible person, who is leading the fight. He, he is doing the right thing. Our city council is doing the right thing and allowing us 
to go out and facilitate bringing everybody together in the community. And it's taken a lot of education, a lot of ed education in very small groups. The faith community has been huge in helping us, but every day we find gaps. Uh, our peak was 2017. And um, you know the first thing we did in Huntington was get naloxone in the hands of all our first responders so that they can save lives in the moment. And that was huge. And then we started the first harm reduction program in the state of West Virginia in 2015. And uh, every time we find a gap, we try to fill it as best we can. We peaked in 2017. And that year we had 1,831 overdoses in the county. And uh, there were 183 overdose deaths that year. So your first responders are worn out. Your average first responder in that year was probably seeing up to five deaths in a month. And uh, we're up to that. And, and, and that wears on everybody, your first responders, uh, your healthcare facilities, and your community. So we took down the silos. We're working partnerships. Uh, we're involving the community. We're educating people. Uh, our first year, 2018, our overdoses were down 40%. Uh, they've continued to go down. We went up a little bit with, um, uh, with the pandemic, you know, so we need to get back out there and back at it as hard as we can. But stigma is the number one barrier that we have, and uh, we will do everything in our power to to get around that barrier and you know change the perception out there these are good people that have a medical condition and we need to turn the tide in how we help help them can, can i just say one thing to that Please. you know one thing that i really loved that i heard um jan say once and, and it revolved around narcan and naloxone <clears throat> and there's debate over that and and some folks will say that it's enabling people uh, to continue to do uh, to do drugs, and sh sh I heard her say, "Yeah, it enables people to breathe," and I was like, "Wow, it was that simple for me." Because I look at my life and I say, "Look, I was ready to off myself in the cemetery for nine months. I got two babies that I get to go fishing with tomorrow morning because I could breathe." And so, you know, at some point we can simplify this to say, "Dude, this is about life and death." for these people, and we're going to argue over something that enables them to breathe. Yeah. I just want to say that up over the top because that made it real for me. So, Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, yes. food, food and water also enable people to continue. <laughs> <laughs> it's that controversial, right? <laughs> Strange. Yeah, I need water and I need to breathe. Uh, thanks, Wes. So I think of the Johan Hari quote, who you may have heard or may have... Uh, heard before is which is sobriety the opposite of addiction is not sobriety but connection and shame keeps people disconnected uh how have you worked to address the shame that the individuals feel who have been afflicted by this so so for me you know i you know i was not only working on uh, as a firefighter on a fire truck but i was also working as a nurse on my days off in a busy er and, you know, we have to change the way that we approach people, okay? So if Jason right here overdoses and, and I, I start rubbing his sternum and smacking him in the face, you know, and I give him naloxone, when he wakes up, he's going to be startled because there's strangers, probably three or four big thug guys standing over him that are firefighters, and he's going to be stunned and he's ashamed, 
okay? Mm -hmm. So, and I'm going to say, you could have died. You, you know, you, you overdosed, okay? So then he's going to be mad at me because he feels like I'm shaming him. And then he's probably going to cuss me. And then I'm going to be mad because he's ungrateful that I just saved his freaking life. <laughs> okay, so that is a very bad dialogue. we got to change that dialogue. What if I held his hand and, and said, honey, are you okay? Do you remember what happened? We want to get you some help. Okay, now, do first responders do that because they think he's a bad guy? No, they're frustrated because they're losing their classmates, their friends. And we have to teach them a different way to approach those. But we have to work on the whole community doing that. Yeah. But keep in mind also that your first responder is not ready to accept that message unless you show appreciation for them. And we are trying to do that in Huntington. We're trying to appreciate our first responders and help them with the trauma that they see day in, day out. Yeah, one of the most touching parts of your documentary is called Heroin. Uh, with an E, it's on Netflix. Jan is is the heroine in it. And <laughs> one of the things that struck me the most was the way you talked to people as they were coming out of a overdose. We want them to, to live. We don't want them to die. Yeah. You know? and, and anything somebody says, a lot of times it's out of frustration. Right. And I get it. I get it. Yeah. So, so what levers are you focused on to help people work together in the community? You just touched on a little bit of this, but to sort of narrow the distance between the individuals who are affected by the addiction and the, and the rest of the community, because it's, we are connected. It's all part of the same fabric. So how, what, do you, what levers do you pull to get people to, to shorten that distance? One of the biggest things that we started was a, a quick response team, and it's run out of, out of Cabell County EMS. And after somebody overdoses within 72 hours, they are visited by a team of people. They are visited by a paramedic, somebody in recovery, who's a mental health worker, an undercover police officer, and a faith leader. And they go to them, they knock on the door, and they say, hey, we revived you the other day. We don't want you to die. We want to share with you what is available for you. And uh, it's been very successful. About 30% of the people that they find are taking them up on that. And now we're, we're trying to expand that as well. Uh, so you don't have to overdose to be reached by this team. Uh, this is growing in West Virginia. There, you know, we have these teams all over the state now, and they're all over the country now. So, All right, we're going to go back to Jason and Wes. So how did shame play a role in your addiction and... Do you still experience it now in sobriety? And I experience if so, no how do you... shame whatsoever. No, you're shame-free. <laughs> Never. It's a wonder I got on pants right now. <laughs> I'm sorry I interrupted you. No. <laughs> I'm ashamed of myself. Thank you for that. Visual. I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> well, now you're ashamed. No. Um, okay, so do you, do you experience shame in, in sobriety? And if so, how do you... How do you work with it? And start with Jason. Yeah, you know, it's a human emotion. I think we all have it. Uh, it but it's, it's a lot less frequent now. Usually, I'm able to redirect it at this point into, oh, there's something that I need to learn, you know. And it hurts. The older you get, the more it hurts to learn. But, um, yeah, early on, it was one of the things that fueled the part of me that wanted to keep using. 
Um, mm-hmm. And there were so there were so many of those, and, and they're they're tricky. You know, I didn't know that that's what was happening. I thought, well, I'm I'm, I'm I mean, people like me because I'm entertaining, I'm creative, uh, I'm funny. I have, uh, you know, all these this list of things, and I thought all these things are directly related. Uh, to be using drugs and alcohol and, right. and if I stop doing those things who will I be then you know I'll be a completely different person people won't want to hang out with me I won't, won't, won't know what to do with my time I won't be funny anymore you know um, uh, but then there would come these big waves of you know shame and 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 you know I, I kind of differentiate guilt and shame because I, I think guilt is more of a personal awareness uh, and shame is more of, of a reflection on how you're viewed by I'm bad yeah. yeah they see me as bad I think is shame I'm I'm behaving badly is guilt you know and I think the guilt can be very good for you you're supposed to feel that but the shame is based on some external uh, force you know that that I think a part of my problem at that point in time, part of the reason that I got so far into my addiction uh, was the fact that I was so concerned with what everybody else thought about me. But then once I started the the recovery process, um, it became obvious to me that those things were very much, they were parlor tricks, you know, and the addiction is not very smart. It's persistent. But it's it's not very small. It's a it's a con man, but it's not like a not like a high level big business. Not a ninja. Con. No. Yeah, no, no. It's like a, you know, it's like a southern senator. Um, <laughs> uh, so once you see through it, then it becomes pretty clear that oh, that was just you know the part of my brain that wants to keep using that was telling me to feel this shame and telling me not to feel the guilt to feel the shame you know and that was also telling me you know well your your creative work that all comes because you know you're using drugs and alcohol all, the the romanticizing of it well i mean hemingway blah 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 all these kind of things that that are really pretty dumb tricks when you get on the other side and you turn <laughs> around and look back at them you're like what why first of all why would I, why would i even aspire to be any of these people why is myself not good enough and and second of all, that's not what was cool about them. That's what was disgusting about their <laughs> life choices. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 a sneaky trick. And 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 you know, after I saw that it was a trick, it was like, oh no, shame is supposed to be uh, accountability. You mm-hmm. know, it's supposed to be a personal thing where you learn how to learn about yourself. Did you? Find. I mean, I think we know the punchline because your career has gone on and and you continued to create. But what was that like initially in sobriety trying to create music? Um, it was hard to do it in front of people at first. You know, the first show that I played, I went out and opened for somebody um, in uh, Australia and, and I was just playing by myself solo acoustic and it was this big theater full of people. And, you know, I was terrified. I was mm. so, cause I hadn't performed sober you know, since I was a kid, really. But after a while, I just started making my world smaller. And uh, and then that What do you mean by that? Well, um, instead of speaking to those folks back there, you know, I spoke to these folks right here and just made sure that it was loud enough where everybody would hear, you know, and and reduced the size of the room to the size of the stage. And and I did that about a lot of things in my life. You know, that that was... uh, sort of a, a, 
a safety mechanism for me, but it really helped because it helped me notice, you know, on, on a bigger, like broader sort of allegorical level, it made me notice what I had right in front of me, the things that I had been looking past as an addict, you know, to get to some sort of grandiose idea or goal of loving myself. I looked past the things that I should be grateful for. And, and once you start counting, you know, if you start like right here and start counting the reasons that you're fortunate, you know, you, you're, it's, it's going to take you hours to get to the edge of that stage, yeah. you know. Um, and once I started doing that, my creative work picked up a lot because, you know, I had a story to tell that resonated with people. And I think one of the primary goals of those songs that I was writing in those days was to break down that sort of barrier of of distinction between addicts and non-addicts, yes. you know, and it was like, I wanted to show people, you know, I, I, I'm just like you guys, and I was just like you, and I'm still just like you. I just had to go through this process for all of us to realize it and feel like a community again. Yeah, that's great. Wes, shame in your addiction. How to keep you stuck? I mean, I agree with him. No, I'm okay. <laughs> everything he said. I'm good. No, um, you know, I, I really relate to the idea of when you said the word fuel. It's fueling, um, you know, the cycle. It's a shame cycle, and you know, to me, he really did answer most of the things that I relate to. And and so, one thing I just wanted to call out was, you know, I think the shame, and we speak about the person being woken up after, you know, being revived and in shock, but also the shame that 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 carries. And I look at, like, the actions I had and um, maybe some of the people... So uh, one one little story really quickly. I had um, one of our employees um, relapse, and he hit it hard, and heroin, meth, all in that weekend, and he called me on a Sunday, and he said, I'm done, dude, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm resigning. And he goes, I need to put my resignation. And I go, why? And he goes, well, because I relapsed. And I said, oh, hell no. I go, I'm not about to make it that easy for you. I go, I'll see you tomorrow. Can you just say that you're not going to do it today and you'll be there tomorrow? That guy left um, uh, last week after two years sober now to go off to another job. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, what it spoke to was the grace in a moment of what I called the the bounce back. Um, We focus so much on the fall and relapse in this thing of time that, that now we've lost something if we had years and we relapse. Like all of that beautiful stuff that happened is still there. And so why do we put so much emphasis on a day when we also know that we're imperfect humans? And so when I look like I've changed my deal, like I'm not sitting there crying about the relapse. I'm focused and excited about the bounce back. And so to me, to me the goal should be run to those people, run to them and show them a radical compassion because I also believe compassion and accountability can coexist. And I think oftentimes we look at those as binary and it's not. Um, We're not saying let them keep using. We're not saying let's fill up the needle. We're saying let's give them a chance to breathe. Let's give them a chance to love again because we're not that indifferent. We're really not. You know, I think one thing I'd like to mention too that revolves around stigma is that, you know, I like to say that addiction is just my flavor of life's affliction. But there are people out there, and I won't point at you to make you feel too guilty, so I'll go in the back where nobody is. I'll say, you watch too much porn. You eat too much ice cream. You do X. You do this. But it's not that socially unacceptable because it's behind closed doors. We walk out 
and no one can relate to us, bullshit. You can. It's just not the same affliction. It's not the same flavor. But we all have the same human reactions and so forth. And our reactions and our, and our results or consequences are so much more open to the world that the attention on that that draws is crazy. Which, by the way, I'm not a victim. I'm not. Um, I, I'm someone who takes responsibility for my life now. And I'm very grateful for that. But again, I just wanted to say out loud, and I think it's really important to say, again, this is not about the fall. It's about the bounce back. Yes. That's where it happens. Well said. All right, another question for you two. So we've, we've mentioned in various, at various places, I think Jason just talked about this idea that if you, uh, if you get sober, you're going to be an outcast. You're going to be othered. You're not going to be part of polite society anymore or uh, belong anywhere. And so it keeps us from, from changing. But there are these major forces that are in place that really want things to stay the same. Um, I'm just going to talk about some of them. Alcohol sales went drastically up in the pandemic. Jan talked about how they had you know, more drug use in the pandemic. But aside from that, we spend $250 billion in the United States on alcohol every year, which is and nine, a shocking 9% of those, the use of alcohol is for those under 21. Wow. 9%, so almost 10%. So let's talk about how we help ourselves. Let's talk about the solution. How we help ourselves and each other in this culture that's kind of optimized for addiction. Wes, we are, let's just take alcohol, which is very normalized, kind of swimming in it. What kinds of things did you have to do to make sobriety your normal? I mean, I think there's, there's practical variables, you know, um, for me, it was removing beer from my fridge that was ice cold. It's real basic. It's like, I mean, I don't know if I'm strong enough yet to look at that. You know, so there's people, places, and things, let's say, right? And so that's more of your practical side. And then on the philosophical side for me, it's, it's like, I'm going to say it, and it's kind of cliche, and I don't want to sound like this guy, but I'm going to have to say it. Uh, it's about purpose. And so I can stop something for X period of time, no problem. I say no problem, but when I'm actually on the path to do it, the question is, what, what is my North Star to keep moving forward? Mm-hmm. Why? And it's not about starting a 50% company so you can act like the sober prophet and save the world or, or play music and then you get more grant. And no offense, you're going to still get them anyway. Um, but, you know, I'm saying it's about, you know, my why. And you've heard about that. We all, you've seen it. And so if you don't have a purpose, who cares about being away from the people, places, and things? Because it will not sustain. You need a North Star. And um, for me, it, it became such a clear North Star. And kind of piggybacking on what he said, it, it's a freaking blessing. You don't, get, you, know, you don't get addicted so I can realize my greatest dreams. I'm an entrepreneur. I always wanted to be. I just didn't think it was going to be this way. I'm like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. It's badass. Like he said, you have an acute awareness. I think of it as a blessing because we're being rocked to this point of your existence and you're like, oh shit, everybody else running this way with no offense to the normies. And I'm sorry, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say normies. But anyway, like they're going on spring break, they're doing the things like this, and that's cool. My life's been this. But then I go, ooh, now I get to feel these this much greater because I've been there. Mm-hmm. The contrast is what makes it that much more meaningful and powerful. And so 
to me, I, it's not bullshit when I say I'm blessed beyond belief to have been given the gift of addiction, <laughs> you know? But yeah. because it's the recovery, now I want to live and like rock and roll. I really do. And it's given me such purpose that I don't find shame or embarrassment behind it at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to tell my kids I smoked crack and popped 35 Viking in a day and was going to maybe kill myself. Not because of that part, but because of the bounce back. Because that's where characters build. That's where, we, that's where we live, find out what we're made of, you know? And so to me, as long as I can stay on that side of the light, you know, when I pass, I look at my kids go, my daddy smoked crack, but he bounced back. I'm like, badass. I'm cool with that, you know? I'm not sure everybody wants that kind of pitch from their son, but I'm cool with it. I don't know if he's going to be cool with it, but, you know. It's a strange eulogy. <laughs> yeah. Strange eulogy. True, true. My dad was many things. <laughs> crackhead. <laughs> okay, I'll pull, I'll pull off of that a little bit then, maybe. Give me a new perspective. Jason, so the alcohol is a a big part of the live music economy. Mm -hmm. What message do you have for people that can't put themselves in a bubble? Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a while there when, you know, people would say, like, right after I got sober, people would say, oh, and you're a musician. That must have been so hard. You know, and uh, then I was like, well, what do you do for a living? You know, and, and they're like, well, I'm a roofer. And I was like, oh, well, what do you do when you get off work? <laughs> I get fucked up. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I think I would be in a lot more danger if I had a job that I didn't love, first of all. Um, so I'm very fortunate to be able to do something that's that rewarding. And to have like a, a creative outlet. Um, I mean, the music business, just like any other business, is really, it's about generating revenue. And it's not, you know, the marriage of the music business and the creative process is not my favorite thing in the world. But I discovered at some point that, you know, if, if, if you're a little better at the business, you get to be more creative. So we, we participate, you know. <laughs> yes. um, but, uh, you know, what I did, I, I was lucky enough to be surrounded by really good people who cared about me and, and saw some type of potential in me and just voluntarily made some changes in their lives to make it an easier thing for me to do but the time is going to come even if you have a bubble the time is going to come when you have to go outside you know and you can't be this sort of like psychological agoraphobic where you where you think well i, I can't go there or i can't do this or i can't be in that situation so i i started making kind of rules for myself early on you know if i was going to go see a, a friend's band play i had this two-hour limit I was, yeah i know two hours in a bar is all that i can handle and then I leave, you know. Um, but but ultimately, uh, I think this the thing that that saved me more than anything else was perspective in those situations and thinking, you know, well, I'm here and this situation is stressful to me and it's something that could potentially trigger me. Uh, so how do I shift my perspective in a way to think, you know, what would be worse? It's just such a great place to start with everything. Like this sucks really bad. But what would be worse? And after a while, you come up with this very long list of things that would be so much worse. And you're like, okay, this doesn't really suck at all. This is actually, I'm actually grateful to be in this situation because there are so many things that would be worse. Um, and that, that helped me a great deal. But I think that there's this proactive energy that you have to bring to your own psychological health. And um, 
I know I mean, everything we say is uh, is subjective, you know, because there are people in situations where it's harder to access any of the things that we're That's talking right. about. There's always mm-hmm. somebody who cannot do the thing that you think they should be doing you know that that's not an option for them yeah. however with all of that in parentheses i think it's a responsibility of an adult to take proactive steps toward you know uh, uh becoming more mentally healthy and mentally stable and the a big shocker for me was you know after i got sober and i was sober for a year or so you know then i started working on myself you know that's when I started working on myself. What did that look like? That was when I began the process of learning how to feel my emotions and how to express my emotions in a way that didn't harm the people around me, you know? Um, And so, you know, 10 years in, I'm still way over here in the beginner section of how to be a human being. But after you work on it for a while, you start to go, oh, maybe this is the point. Maybe this is why I'm here. It's this this process. And, you know, he talked about how it was a journey. Um, and it, it is a journey. But it's it's more like, a, like, like, it's just the whole point to me. It's this experience of trying to figure out, you know, w- w- what am I doing uh, to hold myself back? And, and then as you do that work and, and keep on, whether it's some kind of therapy or, you know, just as simple as the people that you keep around you, you know, you start to get this instinct where you know, this person's good for me. This person's going to help me stay on the path that I'm on. Or this person's not. And really, sometimes it's about making those decisions rather than allowing them to make themselves. You know. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy, and we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description and then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. We're going to do questions in the last 15 minutes, so I'm just going to end with one question for all three of you, if you'll answer. What is one thing that we could be doing, folks out here, to support someone in recovery, which is how we support recovery in America? What that, could we do? That's simple for me. Be kind. You know, that it's, it's free. 
just be kind to somebody. You um, treat people with dignity and respect because we all deserve it. I, I think um, depend on them. You know, some, when people call me and they say my son or my dad or my wife or my husband, they're, they're struggling. Uh, they just got out of rehab, you know, they need to know what to do. Uh, first thing I do is I say I'm not qualified to tell you that. <laughs> but my advice is depend on that person for something. Take the risk of saying, I need you for this. Because you can support people and you can tell them I'm there for you all day long. And that sometimes just enables them to keep using. Because they're like, this person's going to be there for me whether I screw up or not. But I'll give them a chore. I'll give them a task, something that's really important to me. I'll be like, I need you to watch my kid on Wednesday afternoon. And yeah, this is a risk. But if you want to help somebody, you've got to go out there on a limb a little bit, you know. And over, you know, over time, trying this out, I've seen that when people feel like they're needed and they're necessary in your life, they'll work a little bit harder to, to stay on the right path. You know? That's really good. Wes. What was the question? <laughs> Sorry, I get scatterbrained and start thinking about stuff. Oh, no, you're good. Um, What's one thing, one that, thing that I remember now. we can do to support people in recovery? You know, I, I think in the same way that I look at, like, you know, so my sister is a struggling addict, and um, she's actually had a recent relapse. It's been gnarly. <clears throat> but I think there's empathy that uh, is me towards one, another, one person, just looking at them. And, I, and then there's, like, getting in their shoes, empathy. And so someone, you know, I have a friend who has cerebral palsy. And um, I, I've always felt like I had no even reason to ever be able to bitch around him is the truth. Hmm. And, uh, but when I put myself in his shoes and I'd heard some of his perspectives to me or something that I didn't agree with initially, I'm like, what the hell? I can go run in today. Yeah. And I'm like, what the... So to me, it's like, you know, based in compassion, but it's getting education about the perspective. Even if you don't agree with the perspective, it's having at least a proper understanding of what they believe, yeah. either on drugs or when they're in recovery, if you genuinely want to try to help. In the same way that I should try to understand what is the lifespan of my buddy and, and how can I um, increase his quality of life with the gifts I have that he doesn't feel different when he's with me doing whatever we do yeah. because legs are not the matter of it. And so to me, I, I, again, just try to get a perspective or an awareness of what that person could be in regardless of the solutions or the variables you think contributed to it or didn't if you're sincerely wanting to help. And I, but I think that's a human thing. I don't think it's addiction. This is just a laid out over everything. You know, this person's hyper and has ADD. It's because they ate Skittles or they came out that way. We don't know. <laughs> Why don't you think what it would be like if you ate that many Skittles? You know, I try to keep it kind of practical. Yeah. So. All right. We're going to. I don't know where the Skittles came from. Yeah, well. <laughs> I like Skittles. <laughs> We're going to uh, go to some questions. So this is for Jan. At a local government level, it's hard to track progress and impact So to know what's working. How do you know when things are getting better and why? 
So one of the first things we did when we started working diligently on the addiction issue in Huntington that was in the fall of 2014 is we built our own method of keeping real-time data instead of waiting two years for vetted data to come out of the CDC. And that was imperative because that way we can track what's going on, what we need to do, how we need to maneuver to catch what we're not catching and uh, to track progress. And, and we have built that on a local level and it takes collaboration and partnerships. We're, we're blessed in Huntington that we have Marshall University. They've been on board since day one. We have two level two trauma centers, they're on board. Uh, we have a great mental health facility that's on board. And then we built things that we needed like a freestanding facility where people can go and get help within two hours, whether they have uh, insurance or not, instead of waiting for hours or uh, saying, oh, well, we'll have an opening in a month. Right. So it's a community project. It's a community. It, it, it takes us all. We all need to be involved. We'll do this one for, oh, it skipped. Okay. How do you support someone very close to you, romantic or friendship, going through recovery without letting it destroy you or worry you? Jason, you can take that one. Ooh, I get a tough one. That's a tough one. It is. Yeah. Um, Thank you. you know, about the best for you, Jason. <laughs> you got to have boundaries. You got to have boundaries. And uh, I think the best thing that you can do for somebody you care about who is in recovery uh, is, is get your own shit together and keep it together and, mm-hmm. and, and get some kind of, I think everybody should be in therapy. I've never met a person. I don't Amen. I never in my life, nobody, you know, past like the age of 10 therapy time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, you know, you're either in diapers or you're in therapy. <laughs> Perfect world. Uh, but no, I think the best thing you can do is work on yourself and you know, you're going to love that person. You're going to love them. Maybe what they might do enough to keep you from loving them eventually, but probably what you're going to do is you're going to love them despite their choices. And, uh, you need to figure out how to put your own boundaries in place, you know, where you can say, well, I'll do this, but I won't do that. You know, I won't let you encroach on this part of me. Uh, and it's a hard, it's a hard, that's a hard thing. That's one of the hardest situations in the world. You know, I, I, I had a, a, a close family member that had some uh, trouble with opioids uh, a few years ago, you know, and their wife came, came to me and said, you know, what happens if, if they can't beat this? And I said, well, you know, they're going to die, but, but the, the, the worst part of it is when they die, you'll be glad they did, you know, because by that time, you'll be so tired of it that there will be relief, you know. Um, but there's another way, and that, that person got clean, got sober, and has stayed that way for years. Um, so it is possible, but you have to set your own boundaries as somebody who cares about them, uh, or else you're just, you're just you know, going down with the ship sometimes. And it's, it's a sad reality, but you, know, you can help without, without linking your fate. It's a good way to put it, linking your fate. Jan, take this one, since you have been on the front lines for so long. What is the biggest myth about addiction that you want to dispel? You know, that these people are broken or morally bankrupt. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. It's a, it's a medical condition, and it should not be criminalized. It should be treated as a medical condition. And, uh, you know, we, the drug war, the war on drugs for 50 years has taught us that, oh, they're bad people. That's not the case. These are good people, and they do recover, and they are good 
good people and we need to give them the ability to show that to us and shine and be the best person that they can be. Yeah. All right, Wes, what can we do in the schools? You have kids. What would you like to see to help the students who are struggling uh, with possible addiction? Yeah, to me, I have a great mentor who's taught me to look at root cause. <laughs> so and even in that, in that setting when they're younger, instead of looking at the leaves of the tree, look at the roots. Mm -hmm. What are you feeding it? What's going on there? And I think too often we do look at the leaf and you say, look at all of them. They're everywhere. So many problems. Stop. It's right here. Is there divorce in the family or wherever it's happening, um, you know, that could be contributing to emotional stuff. So that's one part of it. Now, that's one part of my opinion. <laughs> so, and then the second one is like, so now how do you come around someone so young and so early in on the process of, you know, Honestly, you know, I don't exactly know because it's, it's, it's part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing yeah. is to be a part of the solution to try to figure this out because it's so, it's so dynamic and the variables that contribute to it, it's on an individual level. But I think from a philosophical or from a, a solution-oriented mentality to try to like take some of the subjective and try to narrow it down to be individually helping that, you know, based on what their flavors or what's happening in their life. It's about identifying root cause. Yeah, Because if that's you fair. don't know the problem, you cannot make the right solution. Yeah. You looked at me, Jan. Do you have ideas? I think that he, he hit the nail on the head. you got to get to the roots, okay? And you do that. We, you know, our school systems, you know, where I live, we're putting social workers in every school building, okay? And mindfulness is being developed to teach at the young age because yeah. you know the youngest overdose I've ever been on as a firefighter was 12. Oof. The oldest was 78 and they were both heroin. So well, we got to we got to prevention is key because the children are our future. Well I'd say one other thing socially you look at folks like stars like Jason like it's fucking cool to be sober too. <laughs> you know what it I mean? is yeah. It's <laughs> And it's not just to say, because I yeah. want to be cool, and I need you to know that I said I'm sober and I'm cool. No, it's you like... You know what? That makes me the coolest person in this, in this auditorium <laughs> right now, because I'm on the stage with three people in long-term recovery, and I couldn't be more proud. Yeah. <laughs> when does... Jason, you can take this one, because maybe you can talk about your own experience. When does recreational use become an addiction? Uh, I quit. <laughs> yeah, if you're asking, quit. Yeah, no, that's my answer is quit. And then you'll know. Oh, and try. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 that's good. That's, that's too actually, easy. That's yeah. actually a good answer. It's wow. Kind of like, I've, got, I've got a friend who writes uh, operas, and somebody asked him one time, how long did it take to write that? And he said, purple. <laughs> that is, that, that if you're asking that question, you know, you just start, and if you think maybe maybe my, my, my recreational uh, use is not recreational use anymore, then quit. Why why not? You know, and see if you can. And maybe for a year, I don't know. Maybe for two years, not for like a week or a day. But right. if you're wondering about weekend. it, just stop. Stop using. You don't need it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually a great answer. Try it out. <laughs> see what happens. Try it out. We'll do one more. 
Addiction has been and is now prominent in my family. This is coming from the audience. The abuse of trust and love has divided us all. Is there hope for recovery when they burn every bridge? Why don't you take that, Jan? Yes. And my opinion, watching this unfold uh, before my eyes and being involved in it, is that this person right here is not the only person that needs the therapy, okay? The whole family needs to be healed. And that trust can only be rebuilt through time, but everybody needs to heal. The person suffering from addiction is not the only person affected. If, if, if you, you need help to deal with it. I, I, I feel strongly that we should have a home health model of, of recovery where a therapist not only goes in and works with a person suffering from substance use disorder, but they work with the family members as well to cut, to cut down on those triggers. You know, so uh, don't be ashamed to get the help you need yourself to deal with it. Yeah, for sure. This is great. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate you being here. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.